Now this week we're continuing on in our look at the seven sayings from the cross. Now this one um, that we're going to look at today is a little more personal to Christ, a little more personal to Jesus. Um, and as the previous two had also shown, it, it shows his interest in the needs of humanity. The first one, you'll remember, the first statement was one of intercession. Jesus prayed on behalf of those crucifying and mocking him. We saw that in Luke 23, verses 23 to 39. The second statement that we looked at last month was a reassurance of salvation to the penitent thief. The thief first joining with the others in the mocking of our Lord, then pleading with him in faith. We found that in Luke 23 as well, verses 39 to 42. This third statement is found only in John. And we see Jesus here hanging on the cross, possibly sometime early in the portion of the hours he spent there, seeing his mother and providing for her. But before we get to our verses that we're going to look at, we'll be in verses 25 to 27 when we get there. But first, let's look at some of the immediate context. John sets the scene for us, starting in verse 17. So John 19, picking up in verse 17, and he says, And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is in Hebrew called Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests and the Jews said to to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garment and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. So I know that was a lot of verses there, but we kind of get our setup. We get our context here. This is where we pick up our account. Christ has been led through the city carrying the cross. He has been nailed to it before it was lifted and set upright. Pilate has labeled him the king of the Jews on the placard. And by this point, the chief, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, others from the city and the soldiers have gathered and mocked and reviled Jesus. And for whom Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. At this point, the penitent thief has probably already rebuked the other thief for, for adding in the mocking and has sought Jesus in faith, to which Jesus assured him of his presence in paradise with Christ, saying, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The soldiers are gambling over Jesus' tunic, having divided the rest up between the four-man squad assigned to his cross. 
John then turns from the indifference of the soldiers, the hatred of the elders and the chief priests, the mocking of the passing crowd, to the compassion of a small group of followers. And we pick up in verse 25. Now therefore, now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So in verse 25, and we'll get to do a little bit of verse 26 here as well. So in verses 25 and 26, we see those present. John tells us this group was standing near the cross. Obviously, close, as we'll see in the rest of the passage, well, close enough for Jesus not only to see them, but to talk to them as well. In the parallel accounts, Matthew 27, verse 55, and Mark 15, verse 40, these passages tell us that this group of women were standing afar off watching these events happen. They seem to have, at this point, moved closer to the cross, maybe as close as they are able to. Now, here in John 19, some translations have this second part have verse 25 as the second part of verse 25, but it's just a, where they break uh, the verse up. Most translations have verse 25 starting where we, where we read this morning. It has it starting with this list of women who have come to see Jesus. Now, there's a little bit of ambiguity in verse 25 um, that it might be three women and not four but most seem to understand that four are listed here. So let's first look at these four women that we have here. First we have listed is Jesus's mother. John's gospel is the only one to mention Mary at the crucifixion. John also doesn't name her. Throughout the book, he doesn't name her. Even back in chapter two, at the wedding in Cana, she is referred to only as his mother. John does that throughout the book when she is referenced. Now, this may be not to confuse her with the other Marys. Now, we see her at the cross. Obviously, at this point, I think she's she is grieving, she is, she is weary, she is tired. And I think this is undoubtedly the time referred to by Simeon in the temple at the dedication of the baby Jesus in Luke 2, that passage we read at the beginning of service. Simeon prophesies about Jesus and tells Mary that a sword would pierce through her own soul as well. So we see Mary there watching her eldest son. Now, secondly, we see in verse 25, we see his mother's sister. Now, here's where the ambiguity and, the, and some of the confusion comes in. It could be that the question comes of, is Mary's sister also Mary, the wife of Clopas, or are they different women? Most take them to be separate. And the difficulty then becomes in, in harmonizing the other accounts with John. Mark tells us that Salome is there. 
while Matthew tells us that the mother of the sons of Zebedee is present. Many understand Salome to be the mother of James and John, thus harming Matthew and Mark. Doing this also leads some to conclude that Salome was Mary's sister. This would make her Jesus' aunt and James and John his cousins. Now, if we take Salome to be the mother of James and John, then we wonder what she was thinking while watching Jesus on the cross. Back in Matthew 20, verses 20 to 29, we see her come to Jesus and ask that her sons could sit on thrones on either side of him in the kingdom. Warren Wearsby commented on this passage saying that this scene must have rebuked her selfishness. Now, because of the ambiguity, it may, in the passage, it may be that Mary, the wife of Clopas, is being referred to as Mary's sister. The, some of the confusion, some of the argument against that is then, well, then you'd have two women in the same family named Mary who were sisters, and that seems odd, so probably not. Another theory is that this Mary may be Joseph's sister, while another theory that we have from a second century writer says that Clopas was the brother of Joseph, making Mary Mary's sister-in-law. Either way, she could be the sister-in-law. Those are some of the theories around there. Now, Matthew and Mark include a Mary who is the mother of James the Less and of Joseph, or Joseph. This is typically understood to be uh, that, that this Mary was the mother of one of the twelve, James the son of Alphaeus. This can get a little convoluted here, but one of the theories is one source suggests that Clopas, the name Clopas is a form of Cleophas, which is a Greek pronunciation of a Hebrew name. And Cleophas and Alphaeus are basically the same name, just Greek variations of it. So this could be that Mary, the wife of Clopas, is the, is the mother of James, the son of Alphaeus, that is mentioned among the twelve. I know it's kind of a, a long way to get to a point, but that's, that's generally who we see this, this lady as. Then the last name mentioned here in verse 25 is Mary Magdalene, or more properly, Mary of Magdala. Uh, Magdala is a Galilean town but along the western shore of the Sea of Galilee between Capernaum and Tiberias. Because Magdalene is associated with this Mary, uh, most assumed that was her original, that was her hometown. This Mary is listed in each of the gospel accounts of the crucifixion and all of the resurrection accounts. She is first introduced by name in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, as one Jesus had healed by casting seven, seven demons out of her. Some try to make her the woman who washed Jesus' feet in, chapters, in Luke 7, uh, using her tears and hair and then anointing his feet with the oil from the alabaster flask. Um, but some of the sources I was looking at saying that seems unlikely and unne an unnecessary connection. 
So we see her introduced for the first time by name in Luke chapter 8. She is listed in Luke 8, not just because she was healed by Jesus and had seven demons cast from her, but she was also listed in that section as one of several women who were followers of Jesus and aided his ministry in providing for him and the disciples, especially while they were in Galilee. Possibly aiding with food, possibly giving money, maybe providing places to stay. But it wasn't just Mary Magdalene alone, but these other women that are listed here in John 25 also seem to have aided Jesus in, in his ministry in the similar way. They are referenced that way in Matthew 27, 55, in Mark 15, verses 40 to 41, and in Luke 23, verse 49. The group of women that are there at the cross, we have four listed for sure here, have followed Jesus from Galilee and have aided in his ministry, even provided for him and the disciples during that time. So there is a close connection between these women and Jesus as he is on the cross. One commentator, John Phillips, makes this statement regarding these women as they watch Christ suffer. He says, it is impossible to describe the anguish and suffering of these four women. His mother had a million memories of him, all of them precious. Mary Magdalene had been delivered by him from a terrible form of demon possession and would have gone through fire and flood for him. The sons of Mary, the wife of Cleophas and Salome were among his followers. It is generally accepted that Joseph, the husband of Mary, the, mother, the Lord's mother, was dead and that she was now a widow. Her other children were not yet believers. Now this brings us to the first part of verse 26. And this section tells us that one other person was present in this group at the crucifixion of Jesus. And it says, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by. We understand this disciple to be John, the author of the gospel. He references himself this way in his gospel, starting back in chapter 13 and moving through the rest of the book. And he references himself this way, not as a boast, but one, uh, one source said as a modest statement from humility that Christ would love him at all. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. For some reason, on a human level, he was designated by special affection from the Lord. Though as Redeemer, Jesus loves all his disciples equally. And it could be that if Salome is Mary's sister and James and John are his cousins, there may be a little more affection to John. Now we'll get into all the reasons why we think John is the writer of this, of this gospel, but one of them was kind of a process of elimination of, well, it can't be Peter. He's mentioned as dealing with the disciple who Jesus loved. We bring it down to the inner three of James, Peter, and John. By the time this book was written, John, James was already martyred. Peter was already referenced, is referenced in dealing with this disciple. So Peter is out, and that leaves us John.
So we see here in our passage that John references himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, not as a boast, but as a modest statement from humility. And that other than John, the only friendly faces Jesus had in this darkest hour were these four women. John alone of the 12 had come to see Jesus. While the remaining 10 were off hiding in fear and Judas was off hanging himself. John alone was the only one to come back. And now that we see who was at the scene, the stage is set, if you will. We come to verse 26 and 27 earnestly, and we see here where Jesus addresses his mother and John. Beginning in verse 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. So in verses 26 and 27, we see a relationship change. A relationship change. Jesus is making a change in this relationship. While Jesus is, Jesus is seeing to the care of his mother, he is also, I think, showing Mary that their relationship is changing. Jesus addresses Mary first in these verses. He sees her at the cross and is likely compelled out of love to ensure that she is cared for from now on. He addresses her. We need to remember that this, was, this would be a difficult and tense time for Mary. Memories of Jesus were probably flooding through her mind. Memories of the angel telling her that she, an unmarried virgin, would be a mother. Memories of the travel to Bethlehem and the birth of Jesus. Memories of the shepherds coming to worship him. Memories of the wise men coming from the east with riches, rich gifts to honor Jesus. Memories of the flight to Egypt to escape Herod's rampage and the slaughter of the innocents. The memory of going back to Jerusalem, searching for her missing son, only for Joseph to find him in the temple in discussion with the teachers. And probably more than the rest, the memory of old Simeon in the temple when they dedicated Jesus, telling her, a sword will pierce through your own soul. A sword of grief at this point. So Jesus out of love, compelled for his mother, tells her, woman, behold your son. But why does he address her this way? First off, I don't think he's being disrespectful. It's not in his nature to be disrespectful. But why does he address her this way? Some argue that the word used can be a term used for mothers. If that were... If that's the case, then why in verse 27, when Jesus addresses John, does he use another word that means mother? Another more practical suggestion here is that he is addressing her as a woman. He may have at least partially been trying to conceal her from the mob to protect her from insults and jeers. By not referring to her directly as mother, he's not pointing her out. He's not putting a target on her. 
I think in, in some way that, that may be true. But I think, like I said, he's not being disrespectful or cold towards her. But he uses a word that means, but he's using a word that means woman as opposed to man. Some say that in the culture, uh, a use like this can be a general term of endearment or general respect. And I think that's probably true. It just, it, it sounds harsh in our ears. But it's, it's, not, it's not coming harsh to Mary from her son in the first century Jerusalem. It wasn't being used in a harsh way here. It seems to be used in the form of general respect for her. But I also think that what he's doing is that he's telling her that he is completing his messianic mission and now they are changing relationship. Jesus was ending the human relationship with Mary. She was being set aside, not harshly, but being set aside as there is no room for such a relationship in the Lord's plan of redemption. No longer is Mary the mother of Jesus of Nazareth. She will shortly, I believe, become the redeemed sinner who is, whose Lord and Savior is Jesus Christ. I think she understood that this was the end of that human relationship. The next and last time we see Mary mentioned in the New Testament is in Acts 1, when she is among the apostles and other followers of Jesus praying. Commenting on that passage, John MacArthur says this, Mary was a woman of singular virtue, or she would never have been chosen to be the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. For that role, she deserves respect and honor, Luke 1.42. But she was a sinner who exalted God her Savior, she referred to herself as a humble bond slave to God who needed mercy, Luke 1, 46 to 50. To offer prayers to her and to elevate her to a role as co-redemptrix with Christ is to go beyond the bounds of scripture and her own confession. The silence of the epistles, which form the doctrinal core of the New Testament about Mary, is especially significant. If she played the important role in salvation assigned to her, or if she were to receive prayers as an intercessor between believers and Christ, surely the New Testament would have spelled that out. Nor do other teachings as her virgin birth and bodily assumption into heaven find any biblical support. They are fabrications. Jesus Christ is the redeemer of humanity. Jesus Christ was and is the spotless lamb who died to purchase salvation. Mary needed saving too. So Mary's relationship with Jesus had to change from mother and son to sinner and savior. With John standing nearby, possibly supporting Mary, or was close by enough that she knew he was there, Mary knew that Jesus was directing her to John. Jesus then turns and addresses John and says, Behold your mother. 
The direction was obvious. Jesus was commending Mary's safekeeping to John. John became a son to Mary in Jesus's place, and Mary became like a mother to John. John wouldn't be a son by nature or adoption, but a son through his affection for and care of and honor and respect of her. Well, why was Jesus doing this? Jesus was the eldest child of Mary. It was his responsibility to care for her. As we mentioned earlier, it is likely and generally accepted that Joseph has died sometime after taking Jesus to the temple at 12 in Luke 2 and Jesus' first miracle in John 2. Mary's other children, those she had with Joseph, the half-siblings of Jesus, were not yet believers. John tells us that in chapter 7, verse 5. And they would not likely become believers until after the resurrection. They are mentioned in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, with Mary and the disciples praying. So the other, so his half-siblings were not likely at the cross. One writer suggests that Jesus didn't want to send her back to his siblings, where she may face words of unbelief that would add to her grief. But we also see here by tending to this natural duty of providing care for his mother, we see a glimpse of Jesus's humanity and his caring of the duties of this life. Here he is still honoring his mother by providing for her after his death when he will not as son be able to continue. So Jesus entrusts Mary to John, the disciple whom he loved, possibly his cousin, possibly her nephew. Now, we don't know. It says that, and from that time, from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. We don't know if at that moment, John took her away from the scene. We don't know if that, if he took her away from the scene right then and there. We don't know for sure, but we see that he took care of her. Some say that she lived with John in Jerusalem and that she died in Jerusalem. Some think that she died 11 to 12 years after Jesus' resurrection, being about 59, and that John buried her in the Garden of Gethsemane. Whether John lived in Jerusalem or Galilee is uncertain, as is how long she lived. But we know that if Jesus entrusted Mary to John, then John cared for her and provided for her as if she were his own, his own mother. Jesus' great love and compassion is seen even here in this small passage. Amid the hours of his excruciating death, he tends to what seems mundane. Jesus' love and compassion for his mother during enduring the pain of the cross is a beautiful example of his love for his own. The end of John 13, 1 says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let us not forget the example of Christ providing for and caring for his mother, even at the end of his time on earth. 
Let us not forget the example of his love that, those, that these few verses show us.